Not to delay information upon an important point, we may state that Harvey Richter was a young minister who had recently been appointed missionary to the Indians. The official members of his denomination, while movements were on foot concerning the spiritual welfare of the heathen in other parts of the world, became convinced that the red men of the American wilds were neglected, and conceding fully the force of the inference drawn thence, young men were induced to offer themselves as laborers in the savage American vineyard. Great latitude was granted in their choice of ground being allowed an area of thousands upon thousands of square miles over which the red man roamed in his pristine barbarism. The vineyard was truly vast and the laborers few. While his friends selected stations comparatively, but a short distance from the bounds of civilization, Harvey Richter decided to go to the far northwest. Away up among the grand old mountains and majestic solitudes, hugging the rills and streams which roll eastward to feed the great continental artery called the Mississippi, he believed lay his true sphere of duty. Could the precious seed be deposited there, if even in a single spot, he was sure its growth would be rapid and certain, and, like the little rills, it might at length become the great, steadily flowing source of light and life. Harvey Richter had read and studied much regarding the American Aborigines. To choose one of the wildest, most untamed tribes for his pupils was in perfect keeping with his convictions and his character for courage. Hence he selected the present hunting grounds of the Sioux in Upper Minnesota. Shortly before he started he was married to Cora Brandon, whose devotion to her great master and to her husband would have carried her through any earthly tribulations. Although she had not urged the resolution which the young minister had taken, yet she gladly gave up a luxurious home and kind friends to bear him company. There was yet another whose devotion to the young missionary was scarcely less than that of the faithful wife. We refer to the Irishman, Teddy, who had been a favorite servant for many years in the family of the Richters. Having fully determined on sharing the fortunes of his young master, it would have grieved his heart very deeply had he been left behind. He received the announcement that he was to be a lifelong companion of the young man, with an expression at once significant of his pride and his joy. Be jabers, but Teddy McFadden is in luck. And thus it happened that our three friends were ascending one of the tributaries of the Upper Mississippi on this balmy day in the spring of 1820. They had been a long time on the journey, but were now nearing its termination. They had learned from the Indians daily encountered the precise location of the large village in or near which they had decided to make their home for many and many a year to come. After landing and before starting his fire, Teddy pulled the canoe up on the bank. It was used as a sort of shelter by their gentler companion, while he and his master slept outside, in close proximity to the campfire. They possessed a plentiful supply of game at all times, for this was the paradise of hunters, and they always landed and shot what was needed. We must be getting well up to the northward, remarked the young man, as he warmed his hands before the fire. Don't you notice any difference in the atmosphere, Cora? Yes, there is a very perceptible change. If this elegant fire only keeps up, I'm thinking there'll be a considerable difference afore long. The ways ye's be twisting and doubling them hands, as if ye had hold of some delightsome soap, 
Spock's the ease have already discovered a difference. It is better nor whiskey, fire is, in the long run, provident you don't swallow at the fire, that is. Even if swallowed, Teddy, fire is better than whiskey, for fire burns only the body, while whiskey burns the soul, answered the minister. Ara, that it does, for I well remembers the last swig I took Amos burnt a hole in me shirt, over the bosom, and they say that is where the soul is located. Ah, Teddy, you are a sad sinner, I fear, laughingly observed Mrs. Richter, at this extravagant allusion. Ah, uh, sad, sinner. Divil a bit of it. I haven't seen the day for twenty year when I couldn't dance at me grandmother's wake, or couldn't use a shillelagh at me father's fourteenth weddin. Teddy, sad, well, that is his a mistake, and the injured fellow further expressed his feelings by piling on the fuel, until he had a fire large enough to have roasted a battalion of prize beeves, had they been spitted before it. Darkness at length fairly settled upon the wood and stream, the gloom around became deep and impressive. The inevitable haunch of venison was roasting before the roaring fire, Teddy watching and attending it with all the skill of an experienced cook. While thus engaged, the missionary and his wife were occupied in tracing the course of the Mississippi and its tributaries upon a pocket map, which was the chief guide in that wilderness of streams and tributaries. Who could deny the vastness of the field and the loud call for laborers when such an immense extent then bore only the name of unexplored region? And yet, this same headwater territory was teeming with human beings, as rude and uncultivated as the South Sea Islanders. What were the feelings of the faithful couple as their eyes wandered to the left of the map, where these huge letters confronted them, we can only surmise. That they felt that ten thousand self-sacrificing men could be employed in this portion of the country we may well imagine. As the evening meal was not yet ready, the missionary folded the map, and fell to musing musing of the future he had marked out for himself, enjoying the sweet approval of his conscience, higher and purer than any enjoyment of earth. All at once came back the occurrence of the afternoon, which had been absent from his thoughts for the hour past. But now that it was recalled, it engaged his mind with redoubled force. Could he be assured that it was a red man who had fired the shot, the most unpleasant apprehension would be dissipated but a suspicion, would, haunt him, in spite of himself, that it was not a red man, but a white, who had thus signified his hostility. The rolling of the stones must have been simply to call his attention, and the rifle shot was intended for nothing more than to signify that he was an enemy. And who could this enemy be? If a hunter or an adventurer, would he not naturally have looked upon any of his own race, whom he encountered in the wilderness, as his friends, and have hastened to welcome them. What could have been more desirable than to unite with them in a country where whites were so scarce and almost unknown? Was it not contrary to all reason to suppose that a hermit or misanthrope would have penetrated thus far to avoid his brother man, and would have broken his own solitude by thus betraying his presence? Such and similar were the questions Harvey Richter asked himself again and again, and to all he was able to return an answer. He had decided who this strange being might possibly be. If it was the person suspected, it was one whom he had met more frequently than he wished, 
and he prayed that he might never encounter him again in this world. The certainty that the man had dogged him to this remote spot in the West, that he had patiently plotted after the travelers for many a day and night, that even the trackless river had not sufficed to place distance between them, that, undoubtedly, like some wild beast in his lair, he had watched Richter and his companions as they sat or slumbered near their camp fire these, we may well surmise, served to render the missionary for the moment excessively uncomfortable and to dull the roseate hues in which he had drawn the future. The termination of this train of thought was the sudden suspicion that this very being was at that moment in close proximity. Unconsciously, Harvey rose to the sitting position and looked around, half expecting to describe the too well-remembered figure. Supper is waiting, and so is our appetites, be the same token in your stomachs that is in mine. How bees it with yourself, Mistress Cora? The young wife had risen to her feet, and the husband was in the act of doing the same, when the sharp crack of a rifle broke the stillness, and Harvey plainly heard, and felt the whiz of the bullet as it passed before his eyes. To the devil would you nonsense, shouted Teddy, furiously springing forward and glaring around him in search of the author of the well-nigh fatal shot. Deciding upon the quarter whence it came, he seized his ever-ready rifle, which he had learned to manage with much skill, dashed off at the top of his speed, not heeding the commands of his master, nor the appeals of Mrs. Richter to return. Guided only by his blind rage, it happened, in this instance, that the Irishman proceeded directly toward the spot where the hunter had concealed himself, and came so very near that the latter was compelled to rise to his feet to escape being trampled upon. Teddy caught the outlines of a tall form tearing hurriedly through the wood, as if in terror of being caught, and he bent all his energies toward overtaking him. The gloom of the night, that had now fairly descended, and the peculiar topography of the ground, made it an exceedingly difficult matter for both to keep their feet. The fugitive, catching in some obstruction, was thrown flat upon his face, but quickly recovered himself. Teddy, with a shout of exultation, sprung forward, confident that he had secured their persecutor at last, but the Irishman was caught by the same obstacle and floored even more completely than his enemy. Bad luck to it, he exclaimed, frantically scrambling to his feet. But it has knocked me deaf and dumb. I'll have ye, I'll hay then, yit, or me name isn't Teddy McFadden, from Limerick Downs. Teddy's fall had given the fugitive quite an advantage, and as he was fully as fleet of foot as the Irishman, the latter was unable to regain his lost ground. Still, it wasn't in his nature to give in, and he dashed forward as determinately as ever. To his unutterable chagrin, however, it was not long before he realized that the footsteps of his enemy were gradually becoming more distant. His rage grew with his adversary's gradual escape, and he would have pursued had he been certain of rushing into destruction itself. All at once, he made a second fall, and, instead of recovering, went headlong down into a gully, fully a dozen feet in depth. Teddy, stunned by his heavy fall, lay insensible for some fifteen or twenty minutes. He returned to consciousness with a ringing sensation in his ears, and it was some time before he could recall all the circumstances of his predicament. Gradually the facts dawned upon him, and he listened. 
everything was oppressively still. He heard not the voice of his master, and not even the sound of any of the denizens of the wood.